Welcome to Founder Fridays on Evolve, a podcast about social entrepreneurs changing the world. I'm your host, Brandon Stover, and today I'm here with founder Chris Wexler. Now, if you're new to the show on Fridays, we feature inspiring founders from our very own Evolve community. The rest of the week, we have long-form interviews with a variety of social impact founders, visionary leaders, and social enterprise experts as they share how they built their startups that are solving the world's greatest challenges. Now, today's featured founder is Chris Wexler, co-founder and CEO of Cronum, which is using the best-in-class AI technology and machine learning to remove digital toxic waste from the internet, like child sexual abuse materials and other indicative content to improve and feed content moderation. So Chris, go ahead and introduce yourself and how your technology is revolutionizing the internet. Absolutely. My name is Chris Wexler. I am the CEO of Crunom PBC, which is a public benefit corporation. So it's the kind of the evolution of B Corp into actual legal structure. And so we are a organization focused around making the internet uh, a safer place for people and really starting with our initial product is all around child sexual abuse material online and stopping that. And we have a technology that is able to bring the next generation of identification and classification of this horrifying material to help large technology platforms, law enforcement, fill in the blank, identify it, classify it and deal with it Mm. and get it off their platforms. Nice. What uh, made you so passionate about jumping into this as a founder? A couple things. One is I spent 20, 25 years on the corporate side doing, and I was kind of the quote unquote black sheep of my family. My sister and brother-in-law were in rural Honduras running, you know, providing world-class healthcare to people in Honduras. And my brother started an anti-human trafficking nonprofit, my Fathers like started the health law department in Minnesota and was principal in kind of fighting big tobacco, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, my mom kept seniors in their homes and I sold motorcycles to middle-aged men and hoped they didn't kill themselves. <laughs> so for years, I wanted to find a better match between my skills and what I viewed is important in the world, which is making the world a better place. And so For years, I've been giving advice and volunteering with Not For Sale, which is an anti-human trafficking organization that my brother Mark Wexler and David Batstone started and have always tried to wanted to find a way to get into that ecosystem. And so Crunum was a perfect opportunity to take my expertise, which is in the world of business and large scale technology and bring that together with a true social enterprise. Can you expand on just how big the problem is of child sexual abuse material? It's pretty jaw-dropping. I think most people are shocked when they hear it. In 2019 alone, there were over 68 million reported incidents of CSAM or child sexual abuse material reported. And that number is probably dramatically low because mm-hmm. about 60 million um, pieces of that were reported by Facebook, which is the largest company really doing the hard work of, of rooting it out on a, on a native basis. And so there, the, the true number is actually probably a multitude, a multiple of that. And the numbers in 2020 with COVID and more people being doing live streaming, et cetera, et cetera, the numbers have actually doubled. In, it Jeez. looks like they've doubled in 2020. And so 
this is a large scale problem. Now, it's it's one that re-victimizes these children every time it gets redistributed. And so it's one where we want to stop a cycle of abuse. As we build the the process right, we find the materials, we then get to the source of where these materials come from, work with law enforcement to actually stop the abuse at its at, at, at its core. But just stopping the re-victimization of sending these images out over and over again is critical. Yeah. Before getting on this call, I was looking at and seeing you had a post a while back talking about the toxic side effects of our digital lives. And I think this is a, a huge thing that we have to start looking at as a society. The internet's like a very early experiment and we're just starting to see some of the negative side effects of it. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting when you look at technology, any technology into culture, it takes about 30 years for our human brains to really adapt to it. It took 30 years for us to figure out radio. It took 30 years for us to figure out television. When television was new, we didn't know what to do. When Gilligan's Island first was on the air about these you know, wacky six people <laughs> that get stranded, the Coast Guard got dozens of calls worried about these people stranded because people didn't understand that it wasn't real. Yeah. We are in probably stage three of how we're dealing with the internet. So, you know, and I've been involved um, in one way or the other with this internet culture from the beginning. The first 10 years was really, it's real. Honestly, it's real. And then we got to the point where we were seeing wide-scale application and connection. And so you know, there was promotion and then connection. And I think that's really the social media era. And we saw nothing but kind of boundless, endless opportunities. And I think there's been a ton of positivity that's come across. You and I being able to have this conversation right. at distance and uh, then send it out through a podcast. Th this is all things that didn't exist in, or, or were very nascent 10 years ago. Right. What we're seeing now in our political life, in our social life, cyberbullying, we're seeing the toxic side effects of an unregulated market. And you know, as a, as a business person, that's an opportunity, right? As somebody who cares about society, it's imperative. And so anytime a business opportunity and something that's imperative comes together, that's a ripe spot for innovation and for, uh, and for activity. Well, let's go ahead and talk about your guys' solutions with the classifier and some of the things that you're doing with deep learning and the computer technology. Yeah, and I, I will just say, just for your listeners and for you, I am not an engineer, and our amazing uh, CTO, Scott Page, when he finally listens to this, will probably roll his eyes <laughs> as I describe it. Let, let me just back up a little bit and talk about Prunam and how we came together as a company. We're actually a joint venture between uh, three organizations. One is Vigil AI, which is an artificial intelligence company out of London, Not For Sale, which is a global anti-human trafficking organization that has projects on five different continents and has just made amazing impact around the world. And Just Business, which is a impact investing organization and uh, incubator that has been a critical part of social enterprises like Rebel Elixirs that you may know if you go to Whole Foods. It's one of the fastest growing natural drinks in the history of the United States, Relocity, which is redefining corporate relocation, particularly in the age of COVID, they're doing amazing work there. And so there's, and then American Battery Technology Company is another mm -hmm. new company in their uh, portfolio that's really working towards recycling batteries for electric cars, mm -hmm. which as we run out of lithium and we run out of these rare earth minerals, that's really right. critical. And so we're part of this ecosystem that is multi multi-stakeholder 
it, we have technologists, we have business expertise, we have the voice of the survivors and kind of the nonprofit space. That's really critical for a problem. And we also pull in law enforcement because mm -hmm. Vigil has strong ties to law enforcement. Our initial product coming out, which is our Vigil AI Cade classifier, is coming from years of work with the Vigil AI team. They originally did the work uh, pro bono for the with, in conjunction with the British government and British law enforcement. And the, initially it was, can this even happen? So they're using a combination of techniques. One is cutting edge computer vision. They've done a lot of amazing work in other areas of computer vision, and they applied that knowledge here. Deep learning and machine learning, uh, being able to really understand the, for, the, for the algorithm to understand what it's looking at, and then applying it with uh, a deep understanding of the needs of law enforcement and privacy, et cetera, in the space of CSAM. And so essentially what we've been able to do is work with the British government who have pulled together what's called the CADE database, which is a child abuse image database. And they use it really to help with investigations and identify victims and, and prosecute perpetrators. And so we, we put our computer vision onto that data set and work with them. It's a unique situation in that we don't actually... Most machine learning, you're dumping a whole bunch of data into your servers and doing a whole bunch of work with it. We don't have that luxury. This is a legal content. We can't hold it. Mm. We never hold it. But we're going in, we're going into uh, government offices and working with law enforcement to actually access the information and train. And I, I don't know how familiar you are with artificial intelligence and computer vision, but it's really good at going, that's a cat, that's a dog. Mm -hmm. Or that's square, that's round. Like th those are pretty simple things that computer vision does really well. It struggles when it gets to human faces, even. There, there's a lot of kind of moral quandary around facial recognition. Mm. And it struggles with misidentification, particularly among people of color. And, and that's, it's seen millions of examples there. Essentially, you show the, the algorithm a million examples and it learns, oh, okay, that's what that is. We were, we were asking the algorithm to do something even further, right. which is understand human uh, behavior through the body positioning, yeah. through implied elements. And so, frankly, when it was first done, it was a big risk because who knew if the technology could even. Luckily, it was kind of a eureka moment that when they first, when they ran it the first time through, they went, okay, there's something here. And it took three years to really get it to uh, the technology to a point where we could bring it to market. Is it basically classifying these images and then you're working with the authorities to basically find the perpetrators for this and are you selling the technology to the authorities or to use the database yeah so essentially what it's doing is is scanning every pixel of an image and going is this something like i've seen before you know something that you and i can do pretty quickly it takes a computer a lot longer to learn that and so right. we have millions of examples sadly that we've trained on and it's led to kind of the next generation of identification in currently the te the current technology which is important technology it's called perceptual hash i'm not going to get too technical but essentially it's putting a fingerprint on a known image so if somebody finds an example csam parochially called kitty porn but we don't pornography implies consent which there is none here so mm. we don't use that term but when when you do perceptual hashing you 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 find an image of it and you go okay we found this one you essentially go, okay, if we find this again, we'll be able to identify it. But that doesn't find everything that's new and novel. And unfortunately, right. the content's being created every day. 
And so, you know, the current technology of fingerprinting is doing, you know, when it was created was important. This is the next step. And mm -hmm. so we're moving from finding maybe two to 10% of content that's out there to being able to identify almost all of the, uh, of the content that's out there. And it's a fun, you know, it's a fundamental shift in the ability of us to automate this. And I think that's not only critical because of the scale of the problem with, you know, hundreds of millions of these images out there, but it's also uh, important for when you think about how platforms like Facebook or Google, et cetera, are actually finding this, this content. Users on their platforms see it, which is adverse exposure. It then gets referenced and sent to a human content moderator, which is, you know, often are experiencing PTSD from having to see these images. And in the U.S., the many of the large platforms have had to actually pay large payouts to their content moderators because of the emotional damage mm -hmm. that this has done to people. So what did they do? They off-shifted this content moderation to developing countries, mm -hmm. to the Philippines, to India. In my mind, that doesn't really solve the problem. It protects them from not having to pay out, but all that does is damage a different set of people. Yes. And so that, you know, that is not a long-term solution. Computers are really good at this because they don't have emotions. Right. It's repetitive. And so, you know, even among highly trained CSAM or CSA investigators, their effectiveness of classifying and identifying this type of content goes down after just 10 minutes, 15 mm -hmm. minutes because it's repetitive, it's draining. A computer doesn't get tired. A computer doesn't um, get emotionally distressed. It just goes, yep, it's this, yep, it's that, and then moves on. And so it works really well on scale and it protects human content moderators, not only the victims, but also these moderators. It also, because we have, the technology team was so smart to build this as a multi-level classifier where we can actually see the relative levels of damage in the images. So everything from the worst to the worst, all the way down to indicative to just sexual posing versus the actual act. It's able to actually bring to humans for decisioning the worst of the worst first versus what they find. Just going through millions of things. Here are the 10, here are the 10 users or here are the 10 images that you need to deal with right away. Not only does it protect people in the process, but it speeds resolution. And so, you know, it's kind of a, on that level, it's a win-win. It's what technology is, is best at. Yeah. What is your guys's business model for this? So w w one line of our business is with law enforcement. And so we have law enforcement partners that buy this technology. We also are at the beginning stages of working with large technology platforms to help them with their content moderation. Gotcha. There are some forward-looking organizations that realize that this is highly risky for them to, to not deal with and to deal with well. And so in a kind of a risk management way, this is critical for them to invest into for their users, for the markets. Mm -hmm. You know, if uh, you're on the front page of the Wall Street Journal saying that, hey, there's millions of incidents of children being abused in your platform, that's not good for your shareholders. So there's a, like a it's not exactly good, you know, it, out of the goodness of their hearts, but it's definitely out of, you know, it's where the pocketbook and some social good actually align in this case. Yeah. And so they're, we're actually working with large technology platforms to implement it into their scanning and content moderation systems. Hmm. What traction have you guys seen so far with it? 
Uh, surprisingly strong, considering how uh, we haven't been in the market that long. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're already in mid to late stage testing with several large clients. And the pickup in law enforcement, you know, the, the feedback we're getting from them is that this is, you know, quote unquote, game changer. That's good to hear because unfortunately, you know, one of our founders, his, his background is as an actual child sexual abuse investigator. And what he saw when he was doing this work is that he was spending 60 to 80% of his time going through these materials that were either referred to them by other jurisdictions because they recognized it was happening in the UK or that they found on raids versus actually taking these images and finding where these kids are. And so he's like, there has to be a better way. And that's when he met up with Scott, our technology lead, to go, hey, we have to um, find a better way. And, and as a result, we can flip the script for law enforcement where they are not spending 80, 60 to 80% of their time trying to figure out what to do, but actually doing. And that's a fundamental shift as well. Hmm. What, do, what do you guys think the opportunity for growth is in this market? I, I mean, th this growth is a multi-hundred million dollar market just in um, the area of CSAM. But we have a wider vision. We talked about the stages of internet. You know, We're in that third stage. And while in the last stage, these platforms were all about enabling speech, and that's critical, and labeling free speech. You and I talking about this is enabling free speech. That's great. What we haven't had is the technology to protect people from speech that is harmful. Correct. And in the United States, we have the First Amendment. Everybody talks about the First Amendment, it's free speech. But there are classes of speech within the First Amendment that are not protected. You can't yell, scream fire in a crowded theater. You, it, you can't produce a real true threat. You can't blackmail. You can't incite the violence. And so all of these things are things that we can help identify through technology. And so our vision is to build a full suite of products mm. that are able to protect users from harmful and unprotected speech. And we really view it as a new category in technology of protection. You know, we have security of from hackers and from, from viruses, et cetera, but protection from violent speech or cyberbullying, et cetera, there's already a lot of companies working in this space. We think that's probably a billion dollar plus marketplace working on in the protection space. Mm. What is the biggest struggle you're having as a founder right now in your startup? I mean, th there are so many when you start a company, right? I think that the, the biggest struggle is finding a way to talk about such a complex issue succinctly. And I, I think I've already proven I'm not great at it on this podcast. But, <laughs> but you know, because you're dealing with issues of social justice, you're dealing with issues of complex technology, you're dealing with issues of law enforcement, but also morality and ethics. And there's so many elements that are going into this one element of CSAM and figuring out when I'm talking to someone at a large technology platform, are they doing it to be defensive to their profits? Are they doing it because they care about security? Are they doing it because they care about children? Because the, all of those types of people exist in these organizations. And so understanding what door to open as I talk to them, is it all about the technology or is it all about the outcome is probably the biggest challenge because every, you know, there's probably 10 different ways to talk about this and everybody, it's an emotionally charged issue. And so, you know, you have to, you, you really have to be delicate when talking about it. Yeah. I think it's even harder, you know, people, these are complex topics. People are trying to speak about them now, but trying to start a company around them, I think would be exponentially harder. 
Yeah, it, it is a really difficult space to start a company. And my background is a bit unique. I was on Wall Street and I like to say the aptitude, but not the attitude. And I was in digital marketing for years. And But one of the things I saw when you know I was working with some of the world's greatest brands with Microsoft and Chipotle and Harley Davidson is that as a service provider to these brands or on Wall Street, the companies that did the best were the ones that were doing things that companies couldn't do for themselves mm. or didn't want to do for themselves. And so, you know, when we look at a complex issue like CSAM, like protecting people from harmful speech, that's a really complex, hard thing that companies are not built around. Google is, they are built to organize the world's information. They're not built to stop CSAM. Right. You know, Microsoft is amazing at cloud computing and, you know, Office, Microsoft Office and fill in the blank. They have all these products, but this isn't what they do full time. And so that's really a business opportunity. Like if you look at anything that's hard and complex that that companies can't do for themselves, that's a huge business opportunity. Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, I, 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 that's more of a, cap, a cup half full approach. But, you know, that's the exciting part of this is that this is something that we can provide expertise to a lot of different companies. Yeah, I love that perspective. Well, where and how can people get involved with helping your startup? Well, you know, to be honest, it's helping kids. If, you know, whenever you can talk to your legislators, about holding companies accountable to, to d- take care of this. If they run across any incidents um, of abuse, report it immediately to the platforms and to the authorities. It's only when we as a culture take this really terrible, dark thing and bring it into the light that we can deal with it. And so, you know, the day-to-day person could just be an advocate for these children. You know, as far as, you know, our business We'll take care of that, but I think it's really critical for we as a culture to to make this an issue that's important. And so, just you know, take care of the kids. That's a pretty easy ask, I guess. <laughs> Love it, Chris. Love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing about your startup. Absolutely, thank you, Brandon. I, I think uh, what you guys do is great, so I appreciate the work you've been doing. That was Chris Wexler, co-founder and CEO of Chronom. As a reminder, if you want to hear more inspiring and purpose-driven founders like Chris, then subscribe to the Evolve podcast right now. It only takes 15 seconds, and in return, you will hear a variety of social impact founders, visionary leaders, and social enterprise experts as they share how they built their startups that are solving the world's greatest challenges. So take out your phone and hit the subscribe button on your podcast app now. Thank you for listening and joining the Evolution Revolution. If this episode was impactful for you, then share it with a friend, because pushing the world to evolve takes more than just you or I. Until next time, my friends, keep evolving. Keep evolving.